Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Our teaching text for today is Philemon um, 1 through 22. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reasons he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayer. Prepare a guest room, that's deep. Good morning, everybody. I'm just going to use this. Cool. All right. Good morning. Yeah, my name is Brandon, and uh, thank you all for having me in my heavy Bible this morning. <laughs> All right, that looks like it's going to stay. We'll see. Yeah, <clears throat> as I said, I'm the executive pastor of Renaissance Church in Harlem, New York. And I'm more proud to be from New Jersey than most people say that I should be. Amen. And so I'm also starting a new church called Eden Church in North Jersey. I'm here with my amazing wife, Malia. Um, so today we'll be in Philemon, as we talked about. So let me get set up here. And I just want to read verse 18. I feel like I should read verse 18 one more time. In the CSB. Which says, And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Yeah, today I want to talk to you about forgiveness. Specifically, the first step of forgiveness, which is identifying with people. I'm going to pray. Lord God, we love you so much. And we just praise you for who you are, Lord God. 
We are unafraid to praise you for who you are, Lord God, boldly, because you are great. and You have proven yourself wonderful and majestic through time and places, Lord God. And so and as we open your word, Father, we open it expecting for you to, to meet us and change us. God, would you move us to be a people who forgive, even when it seems silly? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Who here, by show of hands, has ever eaten in a diner before? Okay, good. A lot of y'all. All right. So I, can, I, I know we can relate then. You know what I'm saying? On the other side of the river, we love diners, bro. I'm telling you, we got Topps Diner in Newark. We got Chit Chat Diner. I might have a photo for you. Chit Chat Diner in Hackensack, New Jersey. One of my favorites, you know what I'm saying? I love a good diner. We got Bendix Diner on Route 17, one of Jerry Seinfeld's favorite himself. And the diner, it's iconic, like, fixture in American culture, is it not? Is it not? You know, the diner, it was created in the early 1900s, and it was meant to resemble those dining carts on a train, which kind of had that rectangular shape and some cushioned stools around it, and so they pretty much just picked that model up and made a real restaurant out of it. And throughout the course of time, they kind of changed all these different architectural things about it, and it was always kind of meant to produce some sense of hope, right? Like through the the 50s, they had this conveyor belt that started to come around, which produced like what we now know as fast food, you know, kind of getting us our food a little bit faster. And and then we see like the flashy signs getting put up, like the famous Las Vegas diner, We also then see now we have this kind of like modern architecture, which is meant to produce this sense of hope, kind of looking forward. You see kind of like a a race car, like you're in a marathon. Like there is something you're anticipating that's good. Maybe it's a 2 a.m. burger, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, diners are also a fixture in a sad part of American culture, too. You know, they were innovating a lot around the time of the Great Depression, we remember the diner. The diner is also a fixture in these different periods of time, like the civil rights movement and Jim Crow and, and world wars, right? Like you, you think about these images of sit-ins and diners in the 60s, and there's great sadness and harm that is associated with the diner as well. And, and there's something magical about when you sit in a diner And I think it's part of this that you are kind of moving forward with this tension of great hope and great harm all at once and still able to enjoy yourself in that dining cart. And there's something about when we sit in a diner that we're kind of like participating in like a little bit of of healing of the historical trauma we have all experienced together as a country, no matter what you look like. And and I think that's what Paul understands. In in verse 18, I see it clearly when he says, charge it to my account. He's talking to Philemon, this church leader, as it said in verse 2. He's leading a church in his home with his wife, and he tells him to forgive Onesimus. And here he understands that there is this this tension in in all healthy relationships, in all God-honoring relationships. There is this tension that you need to walk through between hope and harm, 
between the hope that you have for these relationships and what is before you, but harm that prevents you from easily being able to walk toward that hope. And what Paul is writing about is that exact tension when he says, charge it to my account, this idea of forgiveness, forgiving wrongs. I mean, i got to be honest, it's for that exact reason that Philemon is, is this the type of community, I'm allowed to be honest here, right? We're not pretending and performing in front of each other, amen? All right, cool. Philemon is honestly one of my least favorite books in the Bible. And I would venture so far to say as, A lot of people would agree with me, because when's the last time you heard a sermon on Philemon? (laughs) Thank you. So I'm not alone. But it's one of my least favorite, really, because the idea of Christian forgiveness is odd to me. It just is. It is the opposite of what I know I want in these scenarios. When I am wrong, right, like, yo, Lord, they like... They did something crazy. Like, you don't understand. They threw dirt on my name, and it, it wasn't even true. Like, I'm supposed to do what now? Charge it to the game? Nah. I'm not doing that. Like, no. That, that is my natural position. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I know that for sure. And, like, I have family. <laughs> I have familial and friendship wounds that I'm still healing through right now, like I'm still working through. I will see people this holiday season, amen, that I'm still actively trying to forgive. And what do I do? Like, How do I forgive that person? How do I, how do I do that? I can't forget what they said, what they did. That doesn't just go away. And our relationship is magically the same again. Like, what do I do with that? And maybe you're like me too. Maybe this very Thursday, you're getting ready to see somebody who has or maybe still drives you absolutely insane. And what do you do with that? How how do you forgive? Because it it is the opposite of what we typically want in these moments. The spirit of our day hates God's idea of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is like a, it's like a voluntary suffering. You're voluntarily taking on suffering when you forgive. It's kind of like being a Giants fan, which I have a Giants towel here. I don't know why we do this to ourselves. Why from New York and New Jersey do we do these things? Do we take on the suffering of another group of men who aren't doing their jobs well? You know what I'm saying? Like, and now I'm all mad on a Sunday. Like, why? I know because Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7, right? But that's just not easy. It's not easy to do. And I think first and foremost, it's not easy because forgiveness is irrational. Right? Like for- forgiveness, forgiveness is not a a rational thing. And right now, we are told, make everything like perfectly rational, right? Like, so in a relationship, you strike me, I strike you back. That's, that's equality. Amen, right? Like, no. <laughs> don't amen to that. Don't amen. That seems like fair, right? You strike me, I strike you. <laughs> or demonize them, right? Forget that. Cancel them. Like, the, Nah, like I'm not, I'm not forgiving, I'm definitely not forgiving you because that makes no sense. 
I'm holding my iPad because Sabine Birdsong, who is a semi-popular published blogger, said this about forgiveness recently. She said, we rewrite the outdated narratives of forgiveness, which idealize the pseudo-spiritual uh, when we forgive. We rewrite the outdated narratives of forgiveness, which idealize the pseudo-spiritual fairy tale of redemption and forgiveness over the inherent right for people to just not be abused. In other words, she's saying we shouldn't forgive because forgiveness is a step away from justice. And so to forgive is not rational. And so to forgive means you can't hold uh, uh, consistent justice as well at the same time, which everybody would agree is, is something we should all desire, is justice in the world. And so they're saying you can't hold this like lavish forgiveness and justice together. This idea of justice that we've created, because it's, that's irrational. Why would you forgive if it takes you a step away from other things that you know you need? But the fact of the matter is that in Jesus, in Jesus, we see God is both more forgiving and more just than we would ever be comfortable with. In Jesus, we see that God does not honor rationalism over making things right. He doesn't doesn't just say things need to be rational. He says things need to be made right. Our relationships. In the cross, God is both more forgiving and just than we're comfortable with. Because, right, like, is, is you strike me, I strike, you strike me, I strike you back even very fair? Because somebody typically strikes a little harder. So then there goes your equality. But I think also, not only is forgiveness irrational, we are also just generally blind in our relationship. We have a blindness. You know, like, when we think about what he's saying to Philemon, Philemon is his church leader, and, like, none of his Study and influence and esteem and the community he's leading helped him see that he just wasn't following this simple biblical imperative. You must forgive. Verse 8, Paul says to him, For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, which I know, again, my posture is like, well, command me then. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, command, nah. But I have, the, I, have the, uh, I have the ability to command you to do what is right, to forgive. Because forgiveness is not, a, it's not like a, it would be nice. It would be, it would be you're great, but it would be nice if you, if you forgave uh, your aunt. It, it would be great if you forgave your mother-in-law. You know, that, that would be nice if you did that. It's like, no, you, you must. You must. And so Paul understands this idea, but Philemon, despite all of his esteem, doesn't get this biblical imperative, you must. And I think it's because we all have this inescapable condition of blindness in our relationships. It's the second reason that we do 
we struggle to forgive. You know, you saw my children running around here in the back, praise God, and um, they're in music, and uh, you know, we, my children love to play this like daddy monster game where like I chase them. Actually, Seneca tried to, my youngest tried to start it right here. We were on the, tried to run down the ramp and make me chase her. And they'll kind of like start off by like halfway turned away from me, smiling, and then they'll just start running and be like, daddy monster, ah! Even I'm just sitting on the couch. I'm like, I'm not. So I guess, all right, we're playing. I'm like, daddy monster, and I'll come after them and pick them up and tickle them as much as I can. And one particular time I remember my oldest daughter, I was chasing her doing the daddy monster game. She just starts running, daddy monster, ah! running up the steps, and I chase her into her room, and she's like running, kind of half scared, half laughing a little bit, and I pick her up, and I twist her around, I'm tickling her, and I scream in her face, Daddy Monster! And the only thing she could let out through a couple giggles was, your breath stinks! <laughs> and I was like, the game is over, do you understand? The game is done. I'm going back downstairs to watch the Giants lose. And... One thing about the, the human condition is that my mouth is connected to my nose. I couldn't tell that my breath stank, but Sarai could. And I think very similarly, we have this inescapable condition of blindness that also gives us a hint at our inescapable need for forgiveness ourselves. And being people who know Jesus means we are people who understand our great need for the forgiveness and mercy of somebody outside of ourselves named Jesus. And if you remain blind to your relational woes, you are at risk of, of putting on other people a relational debt that will crush you. Forgiveness is a gift to other people. Forgiveness is a gift to you. Like, I know the people that I'm struggling to forgive, like, that alters my whole personality. Like, I, I don't just struggle to forgive them. I struggle to even, like, interact with people like them who remind me of them because I haven't forgiven. That's a personality altering. Like I'm treating everybody that reminds me of this person. I'm allowing this lack of forgiveness to change me in a bad way. Forgiveness is a gift to other people. More so, it's a gift to you. If you remain blind to this, you are at risk placing a relational debt of widening a relational gap that will affect and crush you, not just other people. And that is exactly why Paul writes what he writes in Philemon. Instead of repaying them, instead of, instead of you strike me, I strike you, he says, forgive. And how does he say to forgive? He says, identify with them. And he says it by modeling it. In verse 1, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and coworker. You see, Paul, Paul is calling Philemon away from the blindness of rationalism and into forgiveness by way of identification. Because identifying with people is the beginning 
of healthy relationships. The, the beginning of all healthy relationships, the only kind of relationship God actually wants for you is identifying with people who you disagree with and who have harmed you. And I must say here that when I say harm, I'm not trying to paint you a 25-minute solution about how to treat people who are physically abusing you. There's a very quick solution to that, and it's called 911. But what I'm talking about is these disagreements, these, these points of, of tension in relationship that naturally occur and are very common. I'm not talking about physical abuse or emotional abuse. Identify with people. Right? So here first he says, Paul, a prisoner. Paul, a prisoner. And when you read Paul's other letters, he doesn't always start off this way, Paul, a prisoner. He often starts off kind of like, you know, representing who he is, right? Listen, like, I'm Paul, an apostle, because he needs to stake his authority in the ground to say what he's getting ready to say. But here to Philemon, he doesn't say Paul, the apostle, Paul, who encountered Jesus himself. No, he says, Paul, a prisoner, because he's specifically trying to identify with the disadvantaged person, identify as the disadvantaged person, Onesimus, in this relationship. He's trying to show Philemon, like, when you look at Onesimus, look at me. That's why he says what he said in verse 18, charge it to my account. He is identifying with him so that he doesn't just see Onesimus, the person that has done a bunch of wrong, but no, he would see a brother who he loves very much. He identifies with Onesimus first, the disadvantaged person in the relationship. To take his place in the feud, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge it to to Paul's account. He takes on whatever unnamed wrong happened here. And the cool thing about it is we don't even really know what happened. There's tons of theologians who philosophize about like what specifically might have occurred. But the fact of the matter is nobody knows because that's not what's most important. It's not the nitty gritty details. He doesn't write to Philemon like, well, I think you're kind of remembering that wrong. Because like when the way I understand it is like, well, this happened, and then that happened, and then like you kind of did this, and then he did that, and so like technically you're wrong, but like he's wrong this way. He doesn't get into all that. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See this brother you're struggling to forgive as a brother who you love and are called to love. Identify. And what does it mean specifically to identify? The first thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean to, like, pretend to know everything about this other person and pretend to be like, I fully understand you. It also doesn't mean to make it about you and, like, relate it to something that you kind of makes sense to you and, like, tell them a story about your life and, like, how well, you know, this kind of reminds me of, like, that's not what it means to identify. That's what it means to have a lot of self-absorption. But what it means to identify is I love people from Indiana, man, but Indiana has an annual mullet competition. That's something I will never understand. I don't understand that life. But we have church partners in Indiana, shout out to Traders Point, and we, we love a lot of Indiana people, right? 
<laughs> I don't get that. But I don't need to to be able to identify with them. To identify simply means to sympathize with the weaknesses of others. To sympathize with the weaknesses of others. And specifically to sympathize with their weaknesses so deeply to, to understand and, and to, to seek to, to, to sympathize with their wounds so much that you bleed for them. Right? Hebrews 4.15, because in Jesus Christ we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. To identify means to sympathize with the weaknesses of others. And that is why Paul says, Paul, prisoner. That is also why Paul identifies with Philemon as well. He says, Philemon, my fellow worker. He says, to Philemon, a dear friend and co-worker, or in the ESV, which I believe was read earlier, my beloved fellow worker. He doesn't come and pop on the scene like, yo, Philemon, you being petty, bro. Like, come on. Like, you know better than this. You're a church leader, man. Stop being lame, bro. Like, you know you need to forgive, man, and just walk away. Like, nah. <laughs> Philemon, my fellow brother, my, my, my co-worker in the faith. He, he identifies with Philemon as well. He models this, this sympathizing with Philemon as a leader who is in need of great change, trying to help other people in need of great change, reminding him, hey, I, I know something of what it's like to, to, to lead people and, and love them and pour your heart out only to have it trampled. My fellow worker, I, I understand what that might be like. He doesn't write to Philemon with a posture of pride to make things rational. No, he writes to Philemon from a posture of peer to make things right. He does not write with this posture of, I'm going to be uh, the, the most right person in this scenario and figure out all the little details of like what went wrong so that we can identify who is wrong and then punish somebody for it. He identifies with Philemon, my fellow worker. I understand something of what it might feel like to be you right now. Because forgiveness begins from a place of identification. And I got to say, isn't that the gospel? Isn't it the gospel that, that God in Jesus Christ didn't, sh didn't appear as like the obvious Messiah coming here to just tell all the earthlings what they're doing wrong and how to do it right. There's other religions for that. In Jesus, God appeared to make things right. In, in Jesus, we see that God came to us. God identified with us here in human form to make our relationship right with him and our relationships right with other people. He came to make right, not to make rational. Forgiveness isn't always rational to the human mind, but it is always right. And so I encourage you, 
maybe even right now, to think of somebody who has wronged you and ask yourself this question. Can you slow down to learn about the weaknesses and wounds that have caused this person to act this way? What are the relationships in your world that need healing right now? And can you take the first step toward forgiveness and try identifying them? Try understanding where they're coming from, like, even if it means that you still disagree. But trying to understand and identify as Jesus identifies with us. Because the justice of God does not depend on human rationality. Because Jesus came to heal our relationship with him and with other people at all costs. At all costs. Jesus came to heal our relationship with him and with other people at all costs. And in Jesus, God identifies with our weaknesses so that we can identify with the weaknesses of other people. Identify with each other. It's the first step to honoring God by healing the relationships he gave you. I urge you to heal the relationships that God has given you. And the first step to doing that is to sympathize with the weaknesses of others as God sympathizes with the weaknesses of you. I'm going to pray.